Hello, my name is Jan Michael Peters. I am a senior scientist and also scientific director at the IMP, the Research Institute of Molecular Pathology in Vienna, Austria. And I would like to tell you about how a protein complex called cohesin and a DNA binding protein called CTCF together full DNA in mammalian genomes. Now, in the first part of this lecture, which has two parts, I would like to introduce the hypothesis between this work, behind this work. I would like to explain how cohesin was discovered. Would like to tell you that it was discovered for having an essential role in sister accommodated cohesion, but then would like to explain why we think that this function in cohesion cannot be the only role that cohesin complexes have. And that instead, and that will then follow in part two, they also, together with CTCF, have a very important function in structuring uh, genomes. Now, I assume that most of you who are watching this video uh, do not need to be reminded about the fundamental role that genomes have for all forms of life on our planet. But I would like to remind you of the fact that genomes can be very large. They can contain a lot of DNA, as is beautifully illustrated in this old electron micrograph from Johnson and Mullinger, which shows just a tiny, tiny proportion of a genome, of the DNA contained in a genome. Now, if we look at our own genome, uh, if you add up all the DNA that is contained in our chromosomes uh, and stretch them out, this will end up uh, giving a length of about two meters of DNA, uh, corresponding to six and a half feet, which have to fit into a microscopically tiny cell nucleus. Now, to put this into perspective, if for a moment you imagine that the diameter of the cell nucleus was not a few microns, which it is, but had the size or had the diameter of a soccer ball, then this would mean that about uh, 80 kilometers or 50 miles of DNA would have to fit into the sphere of this soccer ball. Now, this tells us that DNA has to be very thin. That's uh, the only reason why so much DNA can fit into a cell nucleus. But it also implies that DNA has to be highly organized for genomes to be able to undergo all the processes that they have to undergo, like gene expression, DNA replication, DNA damage repair, recombination, uh, but then also condensation into mitotic or meiotic chromosomes and segregation of these chromosomes in mitosis or meiosis. For most of these processes, it is important that uh, the genomic DNA is properly organized for these processes uh, to be able to be carried out with high speed and very high fidelity. Now, one organizational principle that is being used to fold DNA in chromatin and chromosomes is the folding into loops, schematically shown here, where two distant sequences are brought into proximity. They form the anchor or the base of such a loop, uh, which uh, then is formed by such a process. Now, these loops are thought to exist in interface somatic cells, but also in mitotic and meiotic chromosomes. In interface, some of these loops have been implicated in gene regulatory processes, such as bringing a distant enhancer into the proximity of a gene promoter, which is important during development, for example, or cell differentiation. Uh, lo such looping mechanism is also thought to be important for recombination events, for example, in the B and T cells of our immune system, to uh, allow recombination of immunoglobulin genes uh, to create, then, the diversity of antibodies and uh, T cell receptors that is needed for immune responses. Uh, but it turns out that there's many such long-range interactions, many loops, which presumably do not have regulatory functions in gene expression or recombination, but quote-unquote simply are there for structural purposes, uh, to make sure that genomic DNA is properly organized 
so that the genome can undergo all the processes that I have already mentioned with high speed and uh, precision. Now, how do we know that loops exist? They are very hard to see in interface chromatin. It's possible to do this by microscopy, but not easy. Um, but they can be quite easily seen in special meiotic chromosomes called Lamprash chromosomes, where they were discovered already uh, at the end of the 19th century by Walter Fleming, who also discovered chromosome segregation in mitosis. And these are meiotic chromosomes, as I mentioned, where maternal and paternal chromosomes have been paired, recombined, but then, this is a very unusual situation, are, are active in transcription. And this transcription occurs in large loops that are emanating from the chromosomal axis, as you can see in these uh, beautiful light micrographs, uh, which come from Uli Scheer's lab. These are very special cases, and they, it's not clear how related they are to the loops that are existing in interface somatic cells. Uh, but this case does illustrate very clearly that the principle of looping is clearly being used to organize DNA in chromosomes. Now, about 100 years later, after Fleming, Uli Lemley postulated that similar loops also exist in mitotic chromosomes, mammalian mitotic chromosomes, which are much smaller, uh, smaller because they are more compact, but also because mammalian genomes are smaller than the genomes of salamanders, from which I just showed you the Lamprash chromosomes. Uh, Lemley's lab uh, prepared such mitotic chromosomes by extracting the proteins by salt and then visualizing what was left by electron microscopy. By doing that, they saw what they called a chromosomal scaffold, which at the time was thought to be a static skeletal element. Now, today, is known to be highly dynamic. But importantly, they also saw DNA emanating from the scaffold in loop-like structures. Again, providing evidence that DNA is organized by this principle. Now, that's not to say, of course, that DNA looping is the only way how DNA is organized in chromatin and chromosomes. And most of our DNA is, of course, wrapped around histone octamers into nucleosomal structures, giving rise to 10 nanometer chromatin fibers, uh, shown here by electron microscopy. And then, over very long distances, uh, these chromatin fibers can not only fold into loops, but also into what is known as euchromatic or heterochromatic regions, which electron microscopically uh, are recognized as electron light and electron dense regions, in which by modern sequencing techniques, which I'll come to in the second part, uh, can also be observed as so-called A compartments and B compartments. So looping is only one of several mechanisms that is used to organize DNA in chromatin. Now, in interface somatic cells, um, not in mitotic uh, chromosomes, but in interface somatic cells, many loops are formed by cohesin complexes. Uh, more specifically, we think that these complexes bring together distant sequences to form the base or anchors of loops, but that the identity of these sequences, uh, which form the loop anchors, uh, are specified by the DNA binding protein that I mentioned, uh, CTCF. Now, we postulated this hypothesis about 10, 11 years ago. And one reason for doing this at the time was that we knew very well that cohesin has another function in sister accommodative cohesion. Now, what is cohesion? This is the phenomenon that newly replicated DNA molecules, the sister chromatids, which are generated during S phase by DNA replication, are physically connected. And this connection depends on cohesin complexes. So it was clear that cohesin had the ability to connect different DNA sequences. In the case of cohesion in trans, 
But we wondered at the time whether if they had that property, they could not also bring together sequences in cis, distant sequences on the same DNA molecule to form the loops uh, I've been talking about. Now, let me introduce how cohesin was discovered, because that's important to understand um, more about its function. And it was discovered as, as I mentioned, a protein that's essential for sister chromatic cohesion. Um, this physical connection between the sisters um, is created during DNA replication, but is then needed later in the cell cycle before chromosomes are segregated because cohesion is what allows bi-orientation of chromosomes on the mitotic or meiotic spindle, where each single chromosome needs to be attached to the two poles of the bipolar spindle. And this so-called bi-orientation process is only possible because the sister uh, chromatids are being connected by cohesin. If you imagine for a moment such a cohesion mechanism did not exist, and the sisters were able to diffuse apart once they had been synthesized during S phase, uh, you can realize that it would be very difficult for the bipolar spindle to attach to a chromosome symmetrically and then to separate them during anaphase uh, to opposite poles in a way uh, that each forming daughter cell would uh, obtain the identical or identical sets of chromosomes, which is what they need to do, of course. So for this reason, it's very important that cohesion is formed during the replication and then maintained until the sub subsequent uh, chromosome segregation event. Now, with this in mind, uh, two laboratories, the one of Doug Koshland and, uh, and the one of Kim Naismith, used genetic screens and budding yeast to identify genes that are essential for cohesion, for the physical connection between sister chromatids, and in total found seven such genes, which are listed here. Turns out that four of these encode subunits of the cohesion complex, as I'll explain in a minute. Uh, two other ones are called SCC2 and SCC4 in yeast, uh, but they have different names in mammalian cells, NLPBL and MAU2, uh, are subunits of a different complex, which is needed to load cohesin onto DNA in cells. And then a seventh gene turned out to be an enzyme, an acetyltransferase, that is modifying one cohesin subunit during DNA replication and makes sure that these modified complexes can maintain cohesion from replication until chromosome segregation. And why that is, I'll briefly explain later. Now, what do we know about the four proteins that are encoded by cohesin genes? Uh, two of these are very large uh, ATPases. They're called SMC1 and SMC3. Uh, they can form heterodimers by using a heterodimerization or hinge domain schematically shown here. You can see these in these electron micrographs uh, at the top. Uh, they also have very long coiled coil regions, which you can see again here uh, in the schematic drawing and in the EM images, about 50 nanometers long. And at the other end of these long coiled coils down here, uh, they form uh, nucleotide binding domains, domains that can bind ATP and hydrolyze it, provided that the nucleotide binding domains of SMC1 and SMC3 are brought to, into proximity that's needed for the ATP binding and hydrolysis uh, event. Now, these two nucleotide binding domains are also connected by another subunit, uh, the so-called uh, glycine. Um, in the case of cohesin, this uh, subunit is called SCC1, or also known by the names MCD1 or RAT21. And uh, this third subunit then 
by connecting the ATPase domains uh, forms a ring-like structure together with SMC1 and SMC3. And it is connected by, uh, with a fast subunit called SCC3 in yeast. Um, it's represented by different orthologs in mammalian cells, uh, two of which in somatic cells are called STEC1 and STEC2. Now, what is interesting is that these complexes belong to a, a family of complexes, the so-called structural maintenance of chromosome family, uh, first discovered by Dacoshland. Um, um, this family also has members which are functioning in mitotic chromosomes, namely condensin complexes. Mitotic chromosomes, as I mentioned, um, have DNA loops, uh, but these loops are not formed by cohesin, uh, but are thought to be formed by condensins. And then also, really interestingly, it turns out that this SMC family also has members in bacteria, where they also are important for structuring and organizing um, the genomes of bacteria, which implies that um, DNA organization by SMC complexes in evolutionary terms must be a very ancient process, an ancient principle, and might in fact have predated the wrapping around of DNA around histone octamers. Um, which, um, as I explained, of course, is also used um, to organize DNA. Now, cohesin complexes are large relative to the DNA they're interacting with. Um, they have a diameter of about 50 nanometers. That's 25 times larger than the diameter of a naked DNA, which is only 2 nanometers, uh, as is beautifully shown in this electron micrograph from uh, Pim Husenfeld. And based on this notion, and the fact that three of the subunits of cohesin form ring-like structures, it has been uh, postulated by the Naismith lab that cohesin might be interacting with DNA in a topological manner, according to which it would entrap DNA inside its ring structure. That so-called ring hypothesis is supported by a number of observations. Uh, for example, the finding um, that one can cleave um, any of the ring-forming subunits of cohesin, and that cleavage will result in dissociation of cohesin from chromosomes and will abrogate cis cohesion. And in fact, such a cleavage process of the SEC1 subunit is being used shortly uh, before chromosome segregation by cells uh, to destroy cis cohesion again, as, as I will discuss in a minute. Um, and furthermore, uh, chemical cross-linking experiments that have been performed uh, in uh, yeast have shown that if one cross-links the subunits uh, between the ring-forming uh, subunits SCC1, SMC1, and SMC3, uh, then these covalently linked rings um, are found to topologically be interacting with circular yeast mini-chromosomes in yeast. And uh, these findings have led the Naismith lab to hypothesize that sister cohesion cohesion is formed by two, these two sister DNA molecules being entrapped inside uh, the cohesion ring structure. Now, once this ring structure has been formed, which, as I mentioned, happens during DNA replication around the two sisters, it has to be maintained until chromosome segregation. Uh, but then once chromosomes have become attached to the bipolar spindle, uh, these cohesion molecules, of course, have to be removed again from chromosomes because otherwise the sister DNAs could not be separated in anaphase by the spindle apparatus, which is the whole purpose um, of mitosis or meiosis. Now, somewhat unexpectedly, this removal of cohesin, in my, at least in mitosis, in high eukaryotes, occurs in two steps. 
uh, at the beginning of mitosis and prophase and prometaphase, about 90% of all cohesin is removed from chromosome arms by a mechanism that depends on a protein which is called WAPL. Uh, WAPL, uh, we think, is a protein that's able to open the cohesin ring by dissociating the SEC1 subunit from the SMC3 subunit. And that, of course, according to the ring hypothesis, would result in release of cohesin from DNA. Now, this process uh, is started in prophase and continues throughout prometaphase. For that reason, it's also called the prophase pathway. Uh, it depends on activation of mitotic kinases, which drive many other processes in, in mitosis. Uh, but because it's initiated uh, early in mitosis, so at a time where the spindle has not been fully assembled and has not attached to all chromosomes in a bipolar fashion yet, this process would uh, destroy co cohesion uh, too early, um, namely before chromosomes are all bi-oriented. And for this reason, a small population of cohesin is protected from this prophase pathway, specifically at centromeres, so the point on chromosomes where kinetochores assemble, to which then microtubules of the spindle attach, and where the highest pulling force is created by the spindle operators in, in metaphase and um, anaphase. And at this point, at the centromere, cohesin is protected from the prophase pathway by uh, a phosphatase, PP2A, which is targeted to this chromosomal location by a dedicated targeting factor called Trugoshin, or SGO1, and which protects cohesin from the prophase pathway, presumably by reverting phosphorylation events that are catalyzed by mortality kinases, which would activate the prophase pathway. Now, these cohesin complexes, which are protected at centromeres, are, are maintaining cohesion until spindle assembly has been completed until every chromosome of the cell has become attached to both spindle poles. And then and only then, a different mechanism is activated, which depends on a protease called separase, which now is cleaving the SCC1 subunit, the Kleisen subunit of cohesin, and thereby, like Wappel, is opening the cohesin ring. And that releases the remaining, until then, protected cohesin complexes from centromeres, thereby liberates the sister chromatids so that now the pulling force that's created by the mitotic spindle can separate the sister chromatids towards opposite poles in anaphase. This second pathway, as I mentioned, is only activated once the spindle has been fully assembled. And uh, that's the case because there's a surveillance mechanism called the spindle assembly checkpoint, which is monitoring whether there are chromosomes in the cell that have not or not fully been attached to spindle microtubules in the right way. And as long as that is the case, uh, will prevent activation of separase, which depends on the ubiquitin ligase complex known as the anaphase promoting complex, which is under control by this surveillance mechanism, the spindle assembly checkpoint. So that summarizes uh, the function briefly uh, that cohesin complexes have in the cell cycle, in proliferating cells, namely to mediate sister chromatid cohesion, uh, which is essential for bi-orientation of chromosomes in the mitotic spindle. I've told you briefly that the ATPase activity of cohesion complexes and the loading complex uh, are needed to bring these complexes onto DNA in the first place, that they then establish uh, cohesion during DNA replication when the sister chromatids are being synthesized, presumably in close proximity to the replication fog, 
by a process that's very poorly understood. They then maintain cohesion until chromosome segregation. That, as mentioned, allows by orientation of chromosomes on the spindle. And then they are removed from chromosomes again by two steps. First, by the prophase pathway, depending on WAPL. And then once spindle assembly has been completed by separase, which is a protease that cleaves cohesin and can only become active once spindle assembly has been completed. So that's all very well and nice. Uh, and explains how cohesin complexes function in proliferating cells and what the essential role in chromosome segregation is. But what is interesting is that while this process was being studied, we and others made a number of observations which could not be easily explained if one assumed that the only, the one and only function that cohesion complexes have would be this cohesion function, which of course initially was thought to be the case. And so I will now briefly uh, summarize what these observations were, which will then bring us to the hypothesis that cohesion has a different function in DNA looping. Now, one of these observations is the uh, finding that both the Hirano lab and we made that in vertebrate cells, cohesion complexes are loaded onto DNA actually long before they're needed for their cohesion function. Namely, they're loaded onto DNA during mitotic exit, uh, starting in telophase and continuing then throughout G1 phase. So many hours before DNA is being replicated in the cell cycle and cohesion can possibly be established. That was a bit surprising. Uh, likewise, it was a bit surprising that it was found in a number of species that cohesion on chromosome arms is enriched in very discrete locations, as one can see by chromatin immunoprecipitation experiments. One example is shown here, where you see that cohesion is enriched at very discrete sites, visible as peaks here. Now, if the one and only function of cohesion was to hold the sisters together, one would not necessarily have expected that they would be always located in particular places, because that function they could perform anywhere um, on the DNA. Likewise, it was a bit surprising to realize that, and I told you that already, uh, in a sense, that there is much more cohesion loaded onto DNA initially than is actually needed to resist the pulling force of the mitotic spindle, which we think is its key function in the cell cycle um, when it builds cohesion to enable the biorientation of chromosomes. Because most of the cohesion is removed from chromosome arms again um, before chromosomes are being segregated, as I explained, and only very small amounts are left then behind at centromeres, where they are resisting the pulling force of the mitotic spindle. But these amounts, or these complexes, do not represent more than at best 10% of the cohesion that is initially loaded onto DNA. And, and why it would be there in the first place if it's not needed for cohesion was, of course, not immediately obvious. Now, one hypothesis or one possibility I need to say is that maybe these complexes on chromosome arms that are removed early mitosis uh, have a function in DNA damage repair because it turns out that from S phase onwards, DNA damage repair can be performed by homologous recombination, where a DNA double-strand break in one sister molecule can be repaired by using the undamaged sister molecule as a template. And for that to work, they have to be in close proximity, and that proximity is thought to be provided by cohesion, mediated by cohesion. But it would, that would not explain why cohesion is rich in particular sites, as I mentioned on the previous slide, because DNA damage could occur anywhere on these chromosome arms, um, of course. Now, another surprising finding was that initially, 
cohesin is loaded onto DNA during telophase and G1 phase in a fashion that is actually unsuitable for maintaining cohesion later, in that cohesin initially binds to DNA in a highly dynamic manner, as was first shown by Daniel Gerlich and Jan Ellenberg using uh, photobleaching experiments. And this dynamic binding, it turns out, depends on the same Wapel protein that is also being activated in early mitosis. Because Wapel is present also in interphase, and to a lesser extent than in mitosis, is also active there. In other words, it can also release cohesion complexes, presumably by ring opening um, during interphase, leading to a dynamic binding mode, where cohesion would constantly be loaded onto chromatin by the loading complex, but could be removed again by Wapel. Uh, also during this phase of the cell cycle. Now, that means that cohesin complexes that bind to DNA uh, can only sit there with a, a certain residence time of a few minutes, which would not be sufficient for them to maintain cohesion from replication until chromosome segregation, which is their key function in cohesion, as I explained. And as a result of that, cells have evolved a complicated pathway that allows cohesin to be stabilized on chromatin so that now it can maintain cohesion once that has been established. And in this pathway, initially one subunit of cohesin, namely SMC3, is being acetylated by the ECHO1 acetyltransferase or related enzymes um, that I mentioned earlier, which were discovered in the initial yeast genetic screens. And in vertebrates, then, this modification of SMC3 allows cohesin to interact with a different protein called sororin, uh, discovered by Mark Kirchner and Susanna Rankin, which it turns out is also essential for cohesion, uh, in fact, to the same extent as cohesin itself is. And we think it is essential for that because it is uh, essential for stabilizing cohesin on chromatin. And we think it does that by somehow inhibiting or antagonizing WAPL, which otherwise would release cohesin from chromatin. Now, one reason for thinking that is shown in uh, an experiment um, on this slide, where we have looked at the state of cohesion in mitotic chromosomes spread onto glass surfaces, because one can easily recognize from the structure of these chromosomes whether they have cohesion or not. If uh, you look at such a chromosome spread from a control cell, which has Wapel and sororin, these are human cultured cells, you will see a classical X shape, which is created by the fact that at this stage of mitosis, the prophase pathway has removed cohesin from the arms, dependent on Wappel, but cohesin is still present at the centromeres, leading to this tight connection there and the X shape. Uh, the morphology is very different, however, if sororin is depleted, that's shown in this chromosome spread, where now you can see that all chromosomes have lost cohesion. They have fallen apart into single sister chromatids. Yet a different phenotype is seen if Wappel is depleted, sorry, that's shown here, where now not only centromeres, but also chromosome arms remain cohered, remain tightly connected. Uh, that's because normally Wappel would remove cohesion from chromosome arms, as I told you. If it's not there, it cannot do that. And now cohesion persists away into mitosis, into metaphase and metaphase uh, with cohesion between chromosome arms. But the really interesting point is, uh, is to ask what, what is happening if both Wappel and Soron are depleted, which is shown here. And I hope you can see that under these conditions, chromosomes again have cohesion between centromeres and arms, 
So they have the same phenotype that is seen after vocal depletion alone, despite the fact that these cells did not contain serone any longer, which is essential for cohesion if WAPL is there. So the result is that serone is completely essential for cohesion, but only in the presence of WAPL. And that's consistent with the idea that somehow it must be inhibiting WAPL and must thereby allow uh, cohesion to maintain cohesion from replication on until chromosome segregation. Now, to come back to the original point, uh, it is a bit surprising that cells evolved such a complicated mechanism where cohesin is first loaded onto chromatin in a dynamic fashion to then only stabilize it by a multi-step process during replication so that now it can maintain cohesion. Why did cells not evolve a simple mechanism where cohesin would be loaded immediately during S phase in a stably bound form that was sufficient to maintain cohesion? Now, we think the answer to that question is because cohesin has a very important function also uh, other than cohesion. And that became very clear when we started to look at non-proliferating cells, at post-mitotic differentiated cells. And at the time, to our surprise, found that they also contain cohesin complexes. And these also bind to chromatin. And this is illustrated here. For example, for mouse neurons, which are not thought to ever divide again, and therefore would never need sister accommodated cohesion again. So why would they contain cohesion complexes? And the answer had to be because they must have some other function on chromatin, different from cohesion. So in summary, what I've told you is that, um, yes, cohesion is essential for cohesion, but despite that, it's loaded onto DNA before it's actually needed for having that function. Uh, it's it's enriched at particular sites for which it's not immediately clear why they would be necessary for the cohesion function. It's loaded in large excess in, in higher amounts than what is needed to resist the pulling force of the mitotic spindle. It's surprisingly loaded in a form that is dynamic and thus unsuitable for maintaining cohesion. And it's present in cells that will never need cohesion again. So clearly, these complexes must have another function. Now, an important hint to what this function could be came from uh, the observation uh, made by a number of labs that cohesin in mammalian genomes is co-localizing with CTCF, the DNA binding protein that I mentioned at the beginning, which had been discovered multiple times, initially by Gary Felsenfeld, as a protein that is required for insulation of certain gene promoters from enhancers that are not meant or not supposed to activate these particular promoters. And it had been shown very interestingly that this insulator function is uh, used at some loci for a very special gene expression pattern, namely so-called imprinted gene expression, where a particular gene is being active on one of the two alleles but not the other. This could be the maternal or the paternal one. And for one such locus, um, the H19 IGF2 locus, it had been shown or evidence had been provided that CTCF mediates this allele-specific gene expression by forming allele-specific chromatin loops. So a loop on one, but not the other allele. And that was really interesting because if there was one thing that we knew about cohesin complexes, then it was that they can bring DNA sequences together to build cohesion. And so we wondered whether they could be actually responsible because they co-localized with CTCF for the loop formation that had been assigned to CTCF. 
And consistent with this possibility, Cassian Wendt, who was in my lab at the time, indeed found that the imprinted gene expression, which depends on CTCF, also depends on cohesin. And so that led to the idea that it might be CTCF that specifies as a DNA binding protein that can recognize particular sequences in the genome, which it can, which anchors should form a loop, but it might actually be cohesin that then physically mediates the connection between these sequences to form a chromatin loop. Now, whether that's true and what we know about this process, I will explain to you in the second part of my lecture. Um, and for now, I would like to thank uh, all the colleagues in the field that have contributed to this work on the role of cohesion both in cisachromatic cohesion and in loop formation. And I would like to especially thank all past and present members of my lab uh, for um, their great work uh, in this uh, field, which has led to the knowledge that I have summarized in this lecture. And of course, I would like to thank our shareholders and funding agencies which have made this work possible. Thank you very much for your attention.